Welcome to another episode of Neurotech Brain Bites. This is Manishika and Zoe Steiny Hansen, and we're students at the University of Washington. This podcast series follows the exciting neuroengineering research going on at UW and interviews the students and researchers who make this work possible. Each podcast will interview people who are in the neuroengineering space, dive deep into their research, and hear all about their experiences. Today on the podcast, we are delighted to have Professor Tim Brown. Professor Brown is a leading researcher in the field of neuroethics. He earned his PhD in philosophy from University of Washington and through the UW Center for Neurotechnology served as an embedded ethicist in the UW Biorobotics Lab. Professor Brown is currently a postdoc in the Department of Philosophy at UW. Professor Brown's research, as he describes it, is at the intersection of biomedical ethics philosophy of technology, feminist thought, and aesthetics. Professor Brown, welcome to our podcast. We know it's a busy time for you, so we're really glad that we could have you here. Um, Could you start off by telling us a little bit about your background, your research, and what you're currently working on? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is great, and I'm glad to be participating. So I got my undergrad at the University of California, Santa Cruz, go banana slugs. Um, I also did my work there in philosophy and a little bit of graduate work before coming over to UW to do my PhD in philosophy. Um, And so I came in with uh, a pretty pretty, uh, interesting, (laughs) a pretty interesting, how do I put this, Uh, reputation for being odd and doing really weird research, being very nerdy as well. And so uh, people people were pretty pretty familiar with my interests in disability studies, with with philosophy of science, with the intersection between philosophy of science and um, aesthetics. And so I was a quick pickup for uh, uh, Professor Sarah Goering, who is my mentor throughout my entire graduate program, uh, who was approached by a, a ragtag group of uh, neuroscientists and engineers for this, what they were calling the Center for Neurotechnology. I mean, not the Center for Neurotechnology, but the Center for Sensory Motor Neural Engineering, which became the Center for Neurotechnology. and. Sarah approached me to be part of this really interesting work on neurotechnology and the ethical implications of it. And I think that coming into this research pretty much changed my trajectory forever. Um, Now I'm really interested in neurotechnology uh, and how it'll shape our culture and how it'll uh, shape our interpersonal relations, interpersonal relations. and what we can do to make sure that, you know, technologies are equitable in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Very important work. Um, Thanks. So, <laughs> no, no, we're, we're really excited to hear more about it. Um, so in terms of your research, in terms of work, we, we asked this question to all our interviewees, but could you describe your research as a sci-fi novel? Okay, so... 
imagine that you have technologies that read from and stimulate your brain and they've become ubiquitous. Uh, they can produce immersive worlds right in plain sight, allow you to communicate with anybody at a moment's notice uh, and help you modify your senses, uh, modify your moods, modify your attitudes uh, at, a, at will, at a moment's notice. Um, now imagine that there are pernicious categories, uh, social categories that are being used to shape your behaviors. So what does it mean to be a black person in that cult kind of society? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be queer? What does it mean to be from one nation or another? And how does this change our culture? Um, you can imagine protagonists and antagonists in this kind of world. Um, as a side note, I am working on a sci-fi novel, I think, maybe. We'll see how NaNoWriMo comes along <laughs> next year. <laughs> uh, but these are the kinds of things that I'm interested in. Uh, how neurotechnologies, in particular the ones that stimulate and read from the brain, uh, can be used to collect data, come up with categories, uh, change our experiences, what place we find ourselves in when those technologies are available. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really interesting. I'm excited to see where your, your novel itself goes. Um, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Um, so I think you kind of touched on this a little bit about possibilities in the field, but I'm curious about um, where you are most excited about this research and neuroethics going. So I work in a number of areas. So I'm really interested in the idea of devices that stimulate and record at the same time and use artificial intelligence to uh, drive those techniques. Like when does the system classify a certain kind of activity? Uh, and we will use a neural network for that. And when does the system decide to fire and apply stimulation for a therapeutic benefit? Really interested in the artificial intelligence or other kinds of algorithms that drive that process. I am, again, interested in the kinds of categories that come out of that and the social implications, the social justice implications to be, to be more uh, transparent that come out of those categories. Um, so are there going to be technologies that make us feel like we can't be ourselves? Um, are there uh, implications for data governance? So this idea that uh, data can be collected and shared among research groups between companies, between nations. Uh, I'm really interested in the work coming out of that space, the regulatory space, the, the academic space. Um, I'm also interested in this idea that people will stimulate to give sensory feedback for things. Um, places like Facebook are really interested in this possibility. Facebook and Valve, so that they can stimulate part of you and make you feel like you're in a world. And I'm really excited about that possibility. I wonder what it means for like personal identity, feelings of embodiment, 
and what kinds of missteps are possible. Like if you stimulate a person so they feel pain in a virtual world or they feel pain in their prosthetic limb, is that permissible? Should we be making people feel pain? Uh, even if they, it, I mean, it seems counterintuitive, but maybe if a person really wants to feel pain in their prosthetic limb, we should let them feel that pain. Interesting. Yeah, those are quite uh, sort of difficult questions to even like kind of wrap your brain around. You <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, so could you go back in time a little bit and tell us how you ended up in grad school? How did I end up in graduate school? So I'm a person of color. Um, I don't really know. I didn't know anybody in graduate school. I had heard of people trying to go to graduate school, but um, I didn't know anybody who could give me specific <laughs> guidance about graduate school, but I always wanted to be a professor. And I always wanted to study something interesting. And so um, I set that as a goal, right? So from my high school days, even back when I was failing. <laughs> I failed high school uh, and I got out by a proficiency exam in California. So I was in, I was in community college at 16 years old trying to figure out how to get to <laughs> get to graduate school before I knew what graduate school was. Uh, but eventually, um, um, I took a course on philosophy after taking a course called conceptual physics uh, and conceptual physics was just physics without calculus. I thought it was going to be like mind blowing ideas <laughs> and it turned out not to be. And I found a philosophy of physics course and I took it and it was the hardest course I ever took and I was hooked. I loved philosophy and I just sort of switched everything over to it. And I just decided that that's gonna be that that was gonna be the thing that I would spend the rest of my time in undergrad doing, and that if I had a shot to go to graduate school, I would take it. And so through a lot of mentors um, at UC Santa Cruz, um, they encouraged me to apply to a lot of different programs, including ones I didn't really think I could get into, like I don't know Harvard. Um, I didn't think of myself that way. Um, but University of Washington was the top of the top one on my list. Uh, and it's the one I got into. Um, and so I'm very grateful to my mentors for pushing me toward that, toward my own goals, holding me to my own standards. Um, but that's how I got into graduate school, like um, just with this vague idea that, oh, you should become a professor. You should become a professor because no one else in your family is a professor and that sounds really cool. So 13 year old me and his dreams. <laughs> oh, that's great. What a testament to your perseverance and then also to mentorship. Oh yeah. What surprised you about graduate school or what didn't you expect about the PhD program? Hmm. So when I came to UW, I had already done some graduate coursework in philosophy over at UC Santa Cruz. It was a pretty interesting experience over there. And it, I feel like it prepared me for a lot of things. Um, I didn't really feel like a full-on graduate student. I was just in there, technically in their MA program, but they just needed students to teach, students who had taken their classes before to teach some of the, some of the classes as TAs. 
that was a, a great experience because I got to know a bunch of the graduate students and I got to teach some of the classes and I got some experience. I don't think I was a, a very surprised by much. Mm. Um, I'm not the sort of person who uh, likes to be blindsided. So <laughs> I did a lot of research on what it meant to be in graduate school to, in the first place. So reading, you know, course requirements and, you know, thesis requirements. So the idea of forming a committee to do certain things, right? Like, well, you have to form a committee to do pretty much everything in graduate school, right? And then hearing graduate students complain about not being able to make it through the process, or at least uh, a lot of the difficulties about going through the process. But when I started the PhD program, I guess one of the things that surprised me the most was how much flexibility you have in what you do and what you what you write and who you can choose as a mentor um, and that was actually kind of liberating for me to find out that you know I don't have to pick the people that they say I should pick right I can pick whoever the hell I want to pick um, I can study whatever I want um, even though I knew that it being confronted with that reality is completely different right um, and I guess the other thing that um, I was surprised by uh, was, I don't know, the, how important it is to do, you know, things for your own social benefit, right? Like going to other people outside of your department and making friends, finding resources in other places on, the, uh, on campus. These are all things that like were completely vital to me. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it's surprising how much that kind of stuff helps. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so, so I'm curious, you mentioned that, you know, UW was at the top of your list um, and you know, engineering is very different from philosophy departments, I imagine. So what was the, the research and thought that went into you like, kind of making that list and deciding that you really liked UW? You're right, it's very different in philosophy. But one of the things that you do in looking up different graduate programs for philosophy is you look at who's there and you look at who can support you and the kinds of research that you wanna do. Back then I wanted to do philosophy of science and I wanted to do aesthetics and I wanted to talk to people who had some leanings in bioethics. Um, I knew that was important to me. Um, and so I looked, I looked, I just looked at faculty lists and you, you do this in every discipline, but it's doubly important in, um, in the humanities because it's all about those people. It's not about their laboratory. It's not about who's working in the laboratory. It's not about like, do they have this kind of equipment? It's just those people. And one of the names on the list of people that I found interesting was Dr. Sarah Goering who turned out to be my mentor, and also doc, uh, Dr. Andrea Woody, who turned out to be on my committee. Um, and those two were in large part the reason I came to UW, and I'm glad that I made the decision to come because of them. They were extremely supportive to me throughout the entire uh, doctoral program. Um, and also the other people that I came here for, people like, uh, uh, Dr. Ron Moore, 
um, who is an, uh, an aesthetician who's really interested in natural beauty. That's the name of his book. <laughs> so the beauty we find in nature, um, but also um, big into literature and um, art in general. So uh, he, he really did help in those first few years in giving me um, uh, training in aesthetics uh, that I was, I was sorely lacking. Um, and so just the faculty just seemed, also philosophy is a kind of a, <laughs> I'll just say it bluntly, it's a kind of a sexist field. <laughs> there aren't as many women in most departments and there were women in this department. <laughs> there were a lot of women in this department and a lot of them had really cool research. Um, I'm so excited about the department in general proud to be a part of it yeah I think that's one of those things that you really have to like kind of do some research to pick up on is like what the culture is going to be like at that university um mm -hmm. and it can be really difficult to figure what out that just from looking at the internet but it sounds like you were able to make an informed decision yeah barely uh, if I could go back in time and tell myself something I would tell myself to Talk to more graduate students in the programs that you apply to. <laughs> Try to figure out what it's like to be in those programs. Also take that with a grain of salt, you know, because, you know, graduate students, you know, they're going through one of the most stressful things they're ever gonna go through. Um, and sometimes <laughs> their attitudes about faculty can be clouded, which, which is not to say that they don't know what they're talking about, but it's, it's just one of many things that you should be weighing, you know? So uh, yeah, I wish I could, <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I could talk to myself and tell myself to talk to a couple of graduate students, send off a, a couple of emails, be more proactive. Yeah, that's some advice I hear a lot for sure. Um, and so yeah. one thing that I was kind of curious about is you said, so you, you've said that you didn't know anybody who was in grad school when you were an undergrad, but then you did a lot of research to kind of figure out what grad school was all about and what the expectations were. So where did you go to find those resources and how did you kind of figure that path out on your own? So I said before that my undergraduate life had two parts. So when I, when I said that I didn't know any graduate students or people who had gone to graduate school, that was like in high school in uh, early community college, except for the people who were teaching the classes, like those were the people. But they didn't have much to offer me besides, oh yeah, you should look into going to graduate school in philosophy. And it was pretty vague. Um, this is where things get a little bit embarrassing. Um, I, I said earlier that philosophy is kind of a sexist place. There's a list of <laughs> top ranked philosophy graduate programs called the Philosophical Gourmet. And this is kind of um, a blight on the field of philosophy. It's pretty much a popularity contest. They send out a survey to every philosopher uh, in the profession, according to the American Philosophical Association and a couple of others, I believe. Um, and they pretty much rank one another's programs uh, on rigor and this and that. And so I used that a lot. Like I looked on that list um, and tried to figure out which programs were the kind of programs I would wanna be at. 
Um, and a lot of the information that I got was also from people writing on blogs, um, people who talked about their graduate school experiences on the early Twitter <laughs> and early Facebook. Um, I feel old, <laughs> early Facebook, wow, what was that? Um, exclusive, only college students could be on the Facebook, right? Um, but I got a lot of information out of that, uh, you know, chronicle of higher education kind of things. Um, and also just talking to counselors at my community college and eventually um, professors at, the, at UC Santa Cruz who were able to give me a little bit more guidance. Um, so a lot of the information I got in community college was enough to keep me going until I got to a, a place where I could find mentors, people who would actually write me letters. And so some of that early information was good. It was really good because it was the kind of information like, hey, you should be looking for people to write letters of recommendation for you, which is an important thing. You need letters of recommendation at every step of the way on your academic journey. Um, and so that, that was really important to keep in mind when I transferred com from community college over to a four year. Um, I was already looking for people that I would <laughs> try to make a relationship with. Uh, so that was, that was a good thing to keep up, keep up with and good pieces of, pieces of advice. So at least I got something out of my early internet sleuthing. That was good. Yeah, it sounds like it worked out. And yeah, the early days of Facebook that just makes me think of like Farmville and like all of that stuff way back then. <laughs> Farmville! <laughs> I love it. Um, so I think you've given a lot of good pieces of advice and I, I'm curious about if, they, if you have any like one golden nugget of advice on what makes a successful grad student. Okay, so a lot of people will say that, you know, the successful graduate student is the one who eats, sleeps, and, you know, dreams about their dissertation work or whatever. And that's what you see in a lot of articles. I think that's total BS. I think that the most important thing is that you take care of your mental health. Take care of it. Practice self-care and no, not like just eat a bunch of junk and binge watch Netflix shows. Even though sometimes those two things are self-care, sometimes, sometimes they are, but it's more about going to see a therapist, going and making sure that your, your, your medications are good, getting a physical every year. Graduate students at the UW are lucky and graduate students in a lot of place are, places are lucky to have medical insurance. Some places don't have it. So if you got it, use it, get your, dent, get your dental work done. <laughs> I came into graduate school with a bunch of cavities and now I had, uh, at that point I had insurance and I said, every month I'm going to the doctor, I'm getting my cavities filled and that was self-care. And I'm gonna go see a counselor, that was self-care. I'm gonna go and seek out opportunities outside the department and make friends because I didn't really feel at home. I was too nerdy in my department. So I found friends um, in the Center for Neurotechnology in lots of different departments across campus. 
I even found friends that <laughs> were doing dissertations and writing sci-fi novels. Like, how do you how do you do that? That's awesome. Um, that's self-care. So take care of your mental health. Um, don't let them make you feel stupid. You're not stupid. Um, you're learning like everybody else. And a lot of people are out here faking it. Uh, they're faking that they have the composure. They're faking that they're not having mental health issues. Um, like there's no incentive to share these things openly. Um, there's a lot of stigma around mental illness, a lot of stigma about not being perfect, not being a perfectionist. So if you're perfect and you're not trying to be perfect, it's like, oh, <laughs> show off, you know, the kind of thing. It's a lot of stigma in general and a lot of competitiveness of, among some graduate students, like some of the toxic ones, and a lot of awkward social situations. So the best thing you can do is protect yourself, figure out what works for you, get a good night's sleep, don't hurt yourself, don't punish yourself, and get the care you need. Yeah, I think that's some really important advice. And I, I really like that you're pushing back on that idea of like, you have to be the graduate student who is sleeping, breathing, eating your research, because that's just not going to be, you're not balanced, you're not going to be successful in that way. Um, that doesn't even make for good research. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the coolest research that I can do, it comes out of my personal experiences. I mean, this might not be the same in, in, in the neurosciences, but I'm seeing it happen too. Like there's this one awesome researcher um, who came up with electrodes that work on black hair, um, EEG scalp electrodes that work on black hair because the ones that most of us use, they don't work on black hair. And if you have cornrows or, or braids or any of that stuff, they're not gonna stick. They're not gonna have enough scalp to stick to. Uh, and just talking to their mom, their, their mom was like, hey, this is not right. You should do something about that. And they did. Can you believe it? So like taking care of yourself can sometimes turn into research innovation and advocating for yourself can turn into an entire research trajectory um, that feels better for you, you know? Um, so so it's not about like eating, breathing and sleeping, like other people's stuff, like just be yourself and relax if you can. Um, and uh, take yourself as, uh, I mean, take your, take your personal life in, uh, as, as, as an important feature of graduate school. Totally, yeah, I think that, yeah, more people I think need to hear that and I think in some departments, it's better than others. I definitely, working in, inter, in, in interdisciplinary space, I see like quite a wide range of that kind of competitive mm -hmm. aspect. But yeah, it's, I think more people need to hear that it's not about being 100% research for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of want to close it up a little bit and just hear about your plans for the future. I know that you have some very exciting things coming up for you. So what uh, what's on your, your horizon? Cool. So I want to address a discrepancy in the way I was introduced. And I think this is important. Um, I am a postdoc now. And I have just accepted 
a professor position as an assistant professor of bioethics and humanities here at the University of Washington um, in the bioethics and humanities department. And that's the main thing that's on the horizon. <laughs> Pretty anxious about it, but like all transitions, um, you know, when, when it's behind you, it feels a lot more comfortable. You get used to it. Um, so in that position, I'm looking forward to writing some uh, grants to do more uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion style work in neuroethics, but also more of this wacky, the aesthetics of neural devices. Uh, those devices I mentioned earlier that give you sensory feedback. Um, I wanna think more about that experience. And in thinking about that experience, I wanna do more work to build a framework that can be applied to medical devices and other kinds of uh, other kinds of of intimate devices that we'll all become more used to in the next century um, but certainly within the next decade uh, and so so hopefully um, I can put together grants and collaborative projects in those two areas and uh, build a, a neuroethics empire uh, alongside my uh, longtime collaborators, Aaron Klein and Sarah Goering, um, who lead the neuroethics thrust at the Center for Neurotechnology, who are great, great collaborators and have been great mentors over the years. And, uh, if I do build an empire, it'll be with, the, uh, with their help or with their leadership, really. I'm just hoping to be as good a leader as they are. So um, that's what's on the horizon. So excited. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we're excited for you too. I'm excited to see this empire come to fruition. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Professor Brown, for talking to us. We really appreciated taking your time to hear about your story and learn a little bit more about um, neuroethics and what you do. Thanks for listening. This has been great. Don't forget to take a bite with Brain Bites next time when we talk to Ellie Strandquist, a first-gen PhD student in the Computer Science and Engineering Department here at the University of Washington, whose research focuses on machine learning solutions to analyze neural activity during everyday human behaviors. Until then, stay curious. This podcast was produced by the Neurotech Student Club at the University of Washington. Hosted by Manishka Maduri, Manju Anand, and Zoe Steiny Hansen. Edited by Michael Nolan. Music by Asad Beck. Cover art by Pavithra Rajeshwaran.